David player. He pastors down in Altus, Oklahoma, big old United Methodist Church. And God has been using him in a miraculous way to bring fire into them. Uh, every now and then, just to set the flames, he invites this brother to come down there. And uh, everybody around there knows me now when they come to see the fire burning. Because my desire is to burn for God, as is his desire to live his life for Jesus. Come, my brother. I'm greatly honored to be with you tonight. I'm greatly honored to be a part of this wonderful convention. I was reminded of Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. And we have done that faithfully. Before we got here and while we've been here, our cup runneth over as we have set aside this time to be with each other, I shared earlier on how wonderful it has been to make new friends. That in the kingdom of God, strangers are just friends that you haven't met. And how quickly you can become friends. How quickly God knits our hearts together. How wonderful it is when somebody puts another log on your fire and helps you burn <clears throat> a little brighter. It was said of Mr. Wesley, John Wesley, that he would live his life in such a way that he would want to burn. He would want to go out there and share the, the wonderful gospel, share the love of Christ, and be on fire for God. Not a man who really sought great signs and wonders, but a man who fell deeply in love with Christ, believed the gospel, and lived it out every day of his life. And because of that, God was able to touch literally thousands of lives on a daily basis. And I pray that that same kind of fire will burn in us. That there will be a, a love for Christ. Madly, deeply in love with Christ. And that that will cause a fire to burn in your heart, in your life, in your relationships. That that fire will spread. That we won't try to fabricate it, but it will just ignite others. It will consume us. May we burn brightly for Christ. There's a prayer I like to pray. I've prayed it thousands of times. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and we shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. May we, by that same Holy Spirit, be truly wise and ever enjoy your, constellation, your consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. That is my prayer as we look at the Word of God. That is my prayer as we examine it together. That is my prayer as you open your heart and become good soil. May we be that good soil that produces a harvest 30-fold, 60 and God be praised. May there be some among us who are hundredfold harvests for God. So our text tonight is going to be out of Nehemiah. 
and I'm going to be looking at Nehemiah's journey. Uh, so we'll read two or three portions. The first text comes out of Nehemiah chapter 9, reading from verse 29. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years... You were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and a merciful God. I believe that scripture sets the whole context of what has happened to Israel and where Nehemiah finds himself. He's right in the midst of this tragic season that Israel has found itself in. And so I'm going to start now at the beginning because this is where Nehemiah's story begins for us tonight. Chapter 1, reading from verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down, and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws, the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants 
and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to God, the God of heaven, and I asked the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. This is the word of the Lord. And everybody said, thanks be to God. Hallelujah. On the 7th of December, 1988, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Armenia. Within 10 minutes, 30,000 lives were lost. In fact, by the end of the first day or two, they estimate that as many as 50,000 died because of that earthquake. More than 100,000 were injured besides the 50,000 lost in that terrible tragedy. A young father had dropped off his son and gone home with his wife when the earthquake struck. And as soon as he got his wife into safety, he rushed back to the school where he had left his son. And when he got there, he couldn't recognize the school. The entire campus was flat like a pancake. And so he tried to get his bearings and he realized where the, where the classroom was that his son would have occupied and he made his way to that corner of the campus. And he started moving the rubble that had piled down upon that group of kids. And as he started moving pieces of concrete and rebar and fallen beams, some of the other parents came filled with grief filled with despair, and they said, what are you doing? 
Nobody could survive an earthquake like this. Just stop it. There's nothing we can do. And after they had finished, the father looked up and he said, are you finished? Will you help me now? And again, he started moving the rubble piece by piece off that area where his son would have laid. A little later, there were some firefighters who came because some gas fires had broken out. And they suggested that all the citizens leave the area because it was dangerous. In fact, they said to this man, we think you should leave, so leave it to the professionals. And again, he waited for them to finish. And then he said, are you finished? Will you help me now? Later, even the police came and said, we're trying to clear the area, please leave. And again, he waited for them to finish. And he said, are you finished? Will you help me now? Two hours, four hours, eight hours, this father moved piece by piece out of that terrible tragedy. His hands bloodied eventually because of the roughness of the rock and the beams. 16 hours, 24 hours, 32 hours, 36 hours. He was tireless in his efforts. In the 38th hour, he moved one big piece of rubble and he heard a muffled voice. And he cried out, Armand, is that you? And he said, Father, Father, is that you? He said, yes, son. And Armand turned to some of his friends who had survived and he said, I told you my father would find us. Our text tonight comes at a very dark moment in the history of Israel. The unthinkable had happened. An earthquake of the worst kind. When everything precious had been lost. If you've studied that period, 597 BC all the way to 586 BC, the Babylonians were the powerhouse of the day. And Israel was deep in sin, deep in rebellion. Again and again God had warned. Again and again God had been patient. God had tried everything possible. And finally God had said, enough. Judgment will come against you for your disobedience. I will raise up the Babylonians and they will come and they will defeat you. They will conquer you. They will take you captive. And as God had warned, I believe as God had wept, that judgment finally took place. When Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, nothing came in and nothing went out. It became so desperate that they started eating one another, cannibalizing. Will we eat your child today? Tomorrow we can eat mine. Unthinkable. So desperate finally that they were starving to death. And Nebuchadnezzar broke down the walls and burnt the gates. He ransacked the temple. He destroyed the temple. Anything that was of value was carted off to Babylon. And that whole hated city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's command. They say between 60 and 80,000 of the survivors, the brightest and the best, were marched off to Babylon. Marched off through that wilderness, through that desert. Many didn't make it. They died along the way. The survivors witnessed 
the most horrific experience imaginable. Their loved ones killed before their eyes. Everything they held dear, destroyed. The very place they believed God lived was no longer a part of their lives. They were carted off, in our thinking, to hell itself. Babylon was the place where the living God would not show up, where everything hated and feared existed. There they arrived, slaves, tormented. No wonder when we read the psalm by the rivers of Babylon, when, when we sat down, we, we wept. We wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered how we were besieged, when we remembered how we were attacked, when we remembered how they killed us, when we remember how they marched us off, when we remember the horror that we are experiencing every day living in this hell called Babylon. It is in that dark, tragic season, the earthquake of a nation, that we find this text. God had been so very patient. God had spoken again and again. God had tried everything. But they were stiff-necked and they were stubborn and they were willful. To such an extent that God said, no more. Now, I will not give up. I will not abandon. But the consequences of your disobedience will bring this terrible judgment upon you and your families. Now our text takes us to a moment when a pretty ordinary individual, a cupbearer, a man with a good job, a man who was comfortable, a man who wasn't particularly thinking of himself as some hero for God, asked, what has happened here? What has happened to Jerusalem? What's going on there? It's 150 years later. And that city still lies in ruins. They've rebuilt the temple. There have been a few exiles that have returned. But that place is a disaster. And he hears the report. The people are in great trouble, in distress. And there's disgrace that hangs over Jerusalem and over all the people of Israel. Now something wonderful happens. God takes an ordinary individual, comfortable in his life, and convicts him. A man. A man who starts to weep. I don't know when last you wept. I don't know when last you've sensed the, the conviction of God deep in your heart, where it hurts deep down inside. But Nehemiah, from a casual inquiry, Deeply grieved, so much so that he not only weeps, but he mourns, he fasts, he prays. Something supernatural is happening in the life of Nehemiah. I want you to capture that tonight. God takes an ordinary individual, a comfortable individual, who's playing it safe, who's got a cushy job, who's not looking to do anything grand for God. Until the Spirit of God convicts him, until the Spirit of God breaks his heart, there have been thousands before him who have lived with the reality of Jerusalem being a shambles, who have lived under the disgrace 
of what took place and have done nothing about it. And now Nehemiah senses God at work. The waters in his life are being stirred by God. For four months, he will wrestle with that conviction. For four months, he will pray. For four months, he will wonder what can be done. How can we lift the disgrace? How can I help my people who are in trouble? What is it God wants to do? These are important questions. This isn't just looking for the next promotion. This isn't just trying to, trying to make sure I've got a good retirement. This isn't just trying to play it safe. This is the very stuff that can threaten your whole survival, your whole comfort zone. Because all of a sudden, you're putting yourself right into the hands of God. And how God has great plans. How God can take ordinary cupbearers and do remarkable things with them. You might sit there tonight and say, well, this is just little old me. I'm just a teenager. I'm just middle-aged. I'm a mom. I'm a retired churchgoer. I've heard so many of my churchgoers say, I'm retired now. I've done my bit. Now I've got an RV and I'm going to enjoy my retirement. That's the end of the vision. I'm going to kind of take it easy. I'm cruising. I'm not sure what it is you think about in your own life and your own purpose and your own future, but I want you to know that Nehemiah was right there just trying to get by until God said, Can I do something with you? Can I do something through you? Will you put your life in my hands? And it scared him to death. When God was finished with a plan, it was no small plan. It was a plan that would hinge on many factors beyond his control. He would need favor. He would need partnership. But most of all, he would need a deep abiding trust and conviction that God was real and that God would use him. And by four months, he had that. And finally, his turn came to be the cup bearer. Often the king would have more than one. When it was his turn and he took the cup into the king's presence, that day he wasn't full of smiles. That day there was a gloomy, sad, depressed look on his face. The first time ever, because the king didn't want a sad, moping presence and immediately the king picked up on it huh what's going on you don't look sick you look fine what's going on this must be something down deep and Nehemiah said you're right it is should I not be sad that my homeland the place where my father's library is in total ruin in disgrace there's great trouble there Hear what God does. He no sooner shares what's going on than the king asks, what do you want me to do? You see, that's a, that's a frightening moment because the king could show displeasure, disfavor. The king could dismiss him. If the king was in a bad mood, the king could just get rid of him. The kings were that way. They were kind of arbitrary. They could just take your life like that. Yeah, the king says, what do you want me to do? And I want to thank you, God. Thank you, God. Praise a prayer. Lord, let me say it right. 
pray that it falls on listening ears, on a tender heart. What I would like, King, is I'd like to go back. I'd like to check things out. I'd like to see what I could do. How long is that going to take? What are you going to need? Well, Nehemiah's already got a plan. That's right. He's not sitting there. Let me think about that for a moment. No. Four months long, God has wrestled with him. God has instructed him. God has shown him what it will take. And Nehemiah is quick to give the answers. It's going to take this. It's going to take this. It's going to take this. And by the way, I sure would like some, some safety in trying to make that journey because there'll be people who don't want me to make it. There'll be those who will attack me along the way. I need safe passage. I'm going to need materials. I'm not just going to need vacation. I'm going to need help to get this done because I couldn't do it on my own. <clears throat> and here's the miracle. When God convicts, when God gives a vision, God makes provision. That's right. Now let me just pause here for a minute. It's an unlikely thing for the king to honor him. Because it's at the king's benefit that Jerusalem stay demolished. This is a king who rules an empire. This is a king who is powerful, who subjugates others. But out of that kind of tyranny, a tender compassion rises up and he says, I'm going to help you. Let's see what it's going to take. And I'll give you the materials. And off Nehemiah goes with an armed escort, cavalry with him. He arrives there and he doesn't tell anybody what his real purpose is. He makes a careful inspection to see exactly what it's going to take. And he's not just looking. I believe he's praying. The best spiritual leaders are looking and listening and praying and saying, God, what's going on and what's it going to take? And what do I do? And when he's got it all figured out, he finally announces what can happen if everybody works together, if everybody joins him in what God has called him to do. And a miracle happens. These defeated people, these trying to get by people in survival mode, decide that they are going to step up and they're going to help him rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Lift the disgrace. Deal with the trouble. Reunite a disheartened, scattered people. Listen to the miracle. For 150 years, the walls and the city have laid in ruin. And in 52 days, they will rebuild that city. They will protect it. They will rebuild that wall. They will lift the disgrace. Because they will work together. They will trust God. They will believe that God can do the impossible. Most of these are not construction experts. They're trying to raise families. They've got businesses to run. But they put those things aside and they say, we are going to answer the call. And they do. God does something miraculous through them. You see, Nehemiah couldn't do it himself. He had to have others who would believe in him and in the vision God had given him. And miraculously, because of the favor of God, God starts forging a community. More than a construction team, an army. 
Because it's not long and the opposition rises up. It's not long and there are threats. It's not long and there are those who would like to see Nehemiah dead. They're lies. All of a sudden, Nehemiah has got to become a strategist, like a general, dealing with all the opposition, dealing with his people. They are fearful. They are discouraged. They don't think it's going to happen. He's got to put courage back in their hearts. He's got to recast the vision. He's got to gather them together, sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. He raises an army and a construction force, and they build the wall against the odds in the midst of the attack. Now, the true miracle is a scattered, destitute, rebellious people are reconnected to God. Because Nehemiah's vision is not just for a wall. It's for the restoration of his people. It's for a people who God called. Did you hear his prayer? You redeemed us. You called us. We are your people. And we want to be your people again. How are we going to do that, God? How are you going to do that through me? I'm just a cupbearer. I'm no construction expert. I'm no general. But God is. That's right. If God convicts you, if God gives you a vision, and you will trust God, He will lead you into victory. He will lead you against the odds. He will raise up the ruins and reestablish His purpose. It is never too late. 150 years why even bother? You know why? Because God bothers. God's heart is grieved. God is longing for a man and a woman who will take him seriously. God is looking for one whose heart is toward him. And watch the miracle that God can perform through such a life. In fact, when that wall is built, the neighbors are fearful. They lose their confidence. They were, they were undermining. They were bragging about their abilities and what they were going to do to Nehemiah and his wall builders. They were criticizing the wall that it wasn't ever going to amount to anything. A little old fox will step on it and it'll fall to pieces and all that nonsense. But by the end of God's purpose... They lose their confidence. They learn that there is a God and he is with Nehemiah and he is with these wall builders. And we better shut up. That's right. We better step back. We better take note because there is a God in heaven and he's the one who has rebuilt that wall. Now while Nehemiah is there, he notices that there are things going on among his people that are not good. They take advantage of each other. They're extorting money out of each other. They're not following the instructions of God. They have desecrated the Sabbath. They have unraveled as the people of God. And Nehemiah is not willing for that to continue. And so he leads them back into a faithfulness, into a way of honoring God, in trusting God, in serving God. This little cupbearer is not just a wall builder. He's a nation builder. How does God do that? I don't know. We're just ordinary folks. We're just trying to get by. God, just leave me alone. But he won't. 
His eyes are roaming to and fro across the planet to find somebody whose heart will be toward him, who will trust him, who will hear his voice. He or she that has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today. And do not say, I'm just a cupbearer. God will take a cupbearer and make a general out of him. Or a construction foreman. Or a nation builder. But he won't do it alone. God will show you how to gain favor. How to gain influence. How to forge people together. How to rebuild what has been broken down. This is the heart of God. Our God is a restorer. Our God is a forgiver. Our God is a redeemer. Our God is a God who will take rubble and rebuild us into a masterpiece. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. What about you? What about you? Will you allow the Spirit of God to touch your heart in a way that will make you weep? Tough man that you may be. Busy mom that you may be. Wild teenager trying to enjoy life that you may be. Will you allow that penetrating conviction, that deep love of God to go all the way down in your heart and share with you the grief that resides in the heart of God. It is the grief of God that stirred Nehemiah. It is the disgrace of his people that stirred Nehemiah. It is the trouble of others that kept him awake at night. And as he allowed God to do what only God could do in him, he developed a plan and a purpose and he got a vision and he developed courage and he was willing to do whatever God wanted him to do. He becomes governor. The cupbearer becomes a governor. He's gone for years, 12 years. That's not just a few days vacation. That's not a month or two. How does God show such favor? If you'll study the scriptures, you'll see he does it again and again and again. Study the life of Abraham. Study the life of Moses. Study the life of David. Study the life of Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Study the life of fishermen who heard God, who trusted God, who didn't think they would amount to anything. Remember what Peter said? Jesus, I think you need to leave me because you don't know who you're dealing with. We're a foul-mouthed bunch. We're rough around the edges. I can see you're a holy man and you don't want to be around us because you won't be holy for long if you hang with us. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. You're exactly who I'm looking for. You're not going to be pulling me down, son. I'm going to be pulling you up. I'm going to make you a lover of others. I'm going to make you a sharer of truth. I'm going to make you a redeemer, a part of God's purpose. You'll be a fisher of men. Cupbearer, mom, retired senior citizen. I'm not sure who you are or where you are, but this I know. There is a God in heaven and he loves you and he loves your family and he loves your community and he loves the state you're in and he loves this nation and he loves this world and he's longing for people who will take him seriously. 
who will allow his passion to kindle their hearts with fire, who will be clear about what it is God has asked me to do. And then we can say, honestly, I'm not sure how it's all going to work out, but I'm going to do the next step and the next step. And when the door opens, I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to say, okay, God, please, I'm going to need help now. And watch him do it. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread. You know why? Because there's a God in heaven. There's a God who provides. There's a God who has a vision that exceeds anything we've ever seen. I liked what Lee said. Don't let's get down in the dumps. Don't let's despair. Don't let's become critical. Let's become prayerful. Let's listen up. Let's believe. Let's go where he sends us. I have not seen ear not heard. It hasn't entered our imaginations what God has laid up, what God has called forth, what God has planned for those who will love Him, who will trust Him, who will be obedient to His purpose. Four things that we learn from Nehemiah. Number one, you must connect to God deeply. Not just go through the motions. Not just a peripheral faith. Not just mental ascent. It's got to go all the way down deep in your heart. And when that happens, there's a partnership. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. The living God will indwell you. Not just to give you Jesus bumps, you may get that. But to show you what his purpose is. To put courage in your heart. To skill you, to use you. To demonstrate his glory. What an incredible testimony a cupbearer ends with. That God took me. And God called me. And God skilled me. And God used me. And today, 150 years later, the walls are no longer broken down. They're now rebuilt. The people are no longer in disgrace. They're united. Their sins have greatly diminished. They're working together. They're worshiping together. They're doing the things that the Father asked them to do. And all because I was willing to say with Isaiah, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Will you? Will you truly, not just in a service tonight, but with your life, will you say to God each day, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. Here am I, Lord. Fill me. I want to be your pipeline. Fill me. And then send me to those that need me. As your grace flows out, as your truth flows out, as your healing flows out, as your purpose becomes clear, make me a world changer. Make me a nation builder. My life is in your hands. Jeremiah, Lord, send me. Let us pray together. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. An ordinary man who meets an extraordinary God. A casual conversation ends up revolutionizing his life, breaking his heart, mourning, fasting, weeping, seeking your face until you make it very clear what to do and how to do. And you show favor and you make it happen. You make a way where there is no way. You make provision miraculously and you face the opposition and you overcome the opposition. Put that kind of trust and spirit in us. Put that conviction in us 
Spirit of God, fill us, skill us, use us to be your instruments of grace. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. One of the things I love about the IFCA is that you respond well to an appeal, to a call, to an invitation. In my church, when I ask people to respond, they are very nervous. They are very reluctant. I'll do revivals and it'll take to the fourth night for people finally to break loose from their pew and come forward and receive what God has been offering them. They want it. But they're shy. They're introverted. They don't want to make a spectacle. They've got concerns. They don't want people to think less of them. I am greatly encouraged to see the response that is in your life. A readiness, a willingness, an eagerness to say, Okay, Lord, here I am. Do what it is you want to do with me. So with that in mind, I want to say tonight... If there's something the Lord has touched in you, if you feel challenged in your spirit to open your heart, to begin seeking God's face, not just saying a few prayers, but seeking his face, maybe to start fasting. When last did you start laying things aside and start fasting to say, God, I'm giving you 100%. You've got my attention. I want to spend a day, a week, like a honeymoon. With you, God. Talk to me. Show me. Help me. If God has challenged you, if God has stirred in your heart, if there's something within you tonight, then I want you to come forward as an act of obedience, as an act of response, saying, God, I am willing. I'm not sure where this is all going to go. I'm asking you to make it clear. Show me the next step and the next step and the next step. This is not just a meeting. This is a moment in your journey with God. This is a life-changing moment if you want it to be. This can be an affirming moment where God confirms what he has called you to. This might be a time for you to get the encouragement you need because the going is tough and there are threats and there's resistance and you're not sure how long you can keep it up. Maybe this is the night that God puts courage back in your heart that renews the vision Whatever that need, we want to invite you forward so that here you can meet with God. This is sacred space. This is a sacred place. This is a sacred moment. This is a Bethel where we meet with God in a personal way. Heart, we will ask, what is it we can pray for? And we will believe with you for what God has in mind in your life.